listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, The Gospel of Luke, Jesus for All, we walk through Luke's account of the life and ministry of Christ. Greatness does not come to us with a birth announcement, like when the, we saw the, the birth announcement of, of the princess in those. There are thousands of reporters. What are they going to name the kid? No, Jesus announcement comes in a manger, in a room made for farm animals. This greatness does not come in a king who conquers with great armies and overwhelming force. It comes to us as a king humiliated, shamed, and killed on a cross. What we have and what we're seeing here in the book of Luke is a pivotal point not only in the book of Luke, but also in Jesus' life. Luke is changing his focus from who Jesus is. He spent eight and a half chapters, almost nine chapters, constantly pointing out, this is Jesus. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He is great. We should be in awe of him. Now he's kind of pivoting. He said, now because Jesus is great, because we should be in awe of him, we sh- this is how we are going to live in light of that. He's making this pivot as we definitely dive into next week's passage and continue into chapter 10. But something else is happening. It's actually happening within Jesus and his focus. Because what Jesus is focusing on now is he has his sights set on Jerusalem, where he will be betrayed, arrested, tried, crucified, and buried. He's turning his focus. He has his mind set on Jerusalem. He has it set for the joy that was before him, and that's each one of you that are in Christ today. He and the disciples are on the first leg of that journey, and it is time for his disciples to do what the Father had commanded two weeks ago for us, (laughs) but right before the transfiguration. And what the disciples need to do is they need to listen. They need to listen. This is what we saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? This is my son, the chosen one. Listen to him. So the disciples are going to be taught, as we are going to be taught over the next few months. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Listen to him. Listen to what he has to say. But see, the, the disciples, were, they were having some issues, <laughs> You know, many times we have issues. We, we know maybe a good bit of the Bible and we come in on a Sunday and we hear a message and God has challenged us or God has shown us something and we walk out the door and it's like, what did I just learn? What, what did we just do? And the disciples are, are having a bit of a challenge with what Jesus is saying. And, and I think at the root of it, and it's not specifically in our passage, you're going to hear Marty talk about it next week as he talks about the kingdom a little bit, but you're going to see it all through the rest leading right up to the time of the cross. And what they're failing to understand is this idea of the upside down kingdom. See, when Jesus comes, he, doesn't, he does more than, than saves us, which is plenty to do, but He inaugurates his kingdom, and his kingdom does not work like any kingdom on this planet. His kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. And I believe many times we also forget that Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. This is why we miss true greatness. See, not only are the disciples missing it, but I think sometimes we miss it. We forget about the upside-down kingdom. So, Joe, what in the world do you mean by the upside-down kingdom? 
Well, in order for us to understand this a little bit better, let me start by showing you from Scripture our default position. And you guys know this. I, I'm just mentioning one simple verse and all the way back in Genesis. And, and you know that this is how the world around you works. In Genesis 11, in the Tower of Babel, the account of the Tower of Babel, we read this in chapter 11, verse 4. Then, he said, then they said, those people, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. There's the... The montage, there's the attitude. We will do this on our own and we will make a name for ourselves. That's pervasive all through culture. That's how kingdoms work in our lives today. That is the greatness. We will make a name for ourselves. Look at us, look at all that we can accomplish. That's the default position. This is what the fall has happened. If you think about it, when, when when God told Adam and Eve not to take of the apple, right, of the good of evil, like they, they gained knowledge. They gained to decide what is right and wrong. And ever since then, that's how the fall has affected us. So that's how the kingdom is defaultly working in our lives. That's what we do with our own kingdom, right? We, we build our own kingdom. We put ourselves on, on, on the throne of our own lives. And we live that way. And that's the default mindset from the fall. Now, thankfully, God has saved us. He's given us a new heart, and he's starting to work it out. I mean, I, I wish so many times that, uh, you know, maybe my prayer should be, take me off of Joe's kingdom, put you there so that I can work for your kingdom. I'm pretty sure my life would go so much better if I would do that. And what happens is Jesus comes along and he changes everything, and he flips things on its head. This king comes to reserve the values, to, to reverse the values of the world. He comes in weakness. He comes to serve others. He does not come in overwhelming strength and force, but to die as a ransom for us, for you and me. He did this. And because he's flipped the upside-down kingdom, there are three implications of this upside down kingdom. The first one is this, we enter the kingdom through the same upside down pattern. That's how we enter the kingdom. In other words, we do not achieve salvation by summoning up our strength to live a virtuous life. If this is what you've been taught, I'm sorry that you've been taught that. That is not the truth. See, we enter the kingdom by receiving salvation through the weakness of repentance. See it, how it's upside down? See, if you, you ever repent of something, you are showing your weakness because you're saying, Lord, I, I can't do this on my own, or Lord, I, I am doing this on my own, and I need you to forgive me because it's wrong. It's showing weakness. It's upside down. The second thing is we live and grow in a kingdom not by taking power, but by following Jesus. And we just said, I just laid out that Jesus has his mind to the, to the cross, right? He's gonna die, he's gonna raise again. He's humbly serving. This is how we are to grow in the kingdom. Not by taking power, but by following Jesus. By giving up power so that we can forgive. Stop and think about it. If you're going to forgive somebody, you're giving up the power to get retribution. 
and you're, allowed, you're giving that to God. Because the Bible was clear that he's gonna make all things right at some point in time. Sacrifice and service. So we are giving out the power so that we can forgive, sacrifice, and serve others, just as Jesus did. That's kind of the point of our Philippians passage today. And the third thing is, is we do not bow and cater to the wealthy, brilliant, and able. And this is just James 2, 1 through 7. Rather, what we do in the upside-down kingdom is we lift up those that are on the margins. We lift them up. That's what we do as Christians as we follow Christ. Think about all that we've been through so far in the book of Luke of how many times Jesus is with tax collectors and prostitutes and different people. He's lifting those up on the margins because it's not about your status. It's not about how much money you make. It's not about how good you are. It's whether or not you trust Christ. So it's upside down. Now, there's another implication here and and basically I'm just flat out saying I just want to get this out there to you guys. There's another implication that I want to mention, and I'm only mentioning it because it makes it personal. Because whenever I talk about these other things, you could kind of kind of say, oh, wait, that's just out there. That's something out there, and I don't really have to take it personal. But the way the upside-down kingdom works is in a very fundamental thing that's, that is absolutely necessary for each one of us sitting here today is the way the Bible says we form an identity. And the way we do that is also upside down. The way the Bible says we form an identity is also upside down. And whether you think it, whether you know about it, but each one of us is striving every single day to form an identity. Every single one of us. And, and simple identity formation is primarily can be looked at by answering the question, what is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? That's how you are forming your identity. And, and we've seen this shift and change over different cultures and different times. I mean, many of you have heard of the baby boomers, the, the great generation that rebuilt things after World War II. Well, the main identity builder, the main re way that they are answering the meaning of life question in that generation is to be a good person. How am I going to form my identity? Is to be a good person. And then as things shifted at some point in time, and some of you have experienced this, maybe, you know, I'm from Gen X, so I'm like that generation that's just like in the middle and we're so small and nobody ever talks about us and we're just all jacked up, right? That's just Gen X, right? But if you're like a young Gen X or older millennial, I'm sure you felt the pressure and everything that you saw, everything, go back and look at the movies, go back and look at the songs you sang. They're all saying this, be true to yourself. How do you form an identity? By looking inside of yourself. You must look inside of yourself to find your identity. You know what, that's even shifted. Now it's kind of shifted in, into a way that's, um, we've seen the effects of it all over the place and I don't really need to mention all the different ways that we have seen it. And what is kind of interesting is it's almost like we've officially made identity formation an American agenda. It's like we fully Americanized this because, you know, if you go before, you know, I, I talked about um, 
the baby boomer generation, but if you go back hundreds of years, you know, your identity was formed by your family, right? That's why if, if your last name is Baker, you're probably what? A baker. If your last name is Smith, your probably lineage was somewhere was probably a goldsmith. You see, so for identity formation has been happening since the beginning of history. And, and nowadays, we fully Americanized it. And we simply state that, guess what? You get to decide who you are. Some cases, you get to decide what you are. We fully come full circle. Again, I'm not going to try to get into all the different ways you guys are very smart people, and I know that you can think through some of the ways that this is happening in, in the world around us today. But can I just warn you of this? And, and, and maybe you can think about how and what you are doing as far as who you think you are and what kind of identity that you are forming right now and how you are forming that Identity that the question is, what is the meaning of life? The problem is, is whenever you do it yourself, it brings about such great pressure on you to hold that up. And we were never meant to do that. We were never designed to do that. As human beings, we were never designed to do that. It brings about so much pressure. Because why? If you are deciding this is my identity, then you got to perform all the time. You got to make sure that you have enough Facebook likes and Instagram things, and you got to make sure that people like you. You got to make sure that people affirm your identity. Guys, that is so much pressure. That is the weight that you probably feel right now. Because see, if, if you're deciding that, then you're never going to say, Brother Tim, I'm struggling with this sin because you're protecting your identity. You're never being humble, you're never being vulnerable. You can never get to that repentance. There's so much pressure there. You have to have other people approval of your performance. Because if you don't have their approval, then when they disagree with you, now, you know, if you're not buying into, or maybe you're not following everything that I'm saying right now, I'm pretty sure that everyone sitting here in this room has either experienced this or have seen this. Follow this, follow this thinking. Because if you don't have their approval, then when they disagree with you about issues and ideas, you feel as if they are attacking your identity and you lash out and you get mad. Has anybody seen anything about politics lately? All they ever do is attack people's identity. They don't talk about ideas and they don't talk about issues. They attack people's identities. We are never meant to hold up this pressure I mean, that is fundamentally what is kind of seems like that's going wrong in our culture today. Everyone's performing for their identity. And if you d disagree with issues or ideas, they take it out as an attack on their identity and where it results is anger and hate. 
anger, and hate. I must cancel you now because you won't affirm my identity. Even though all we were disagreeing with was an idea or an issue. Just something to think about. But let me relieve the pressure. What is the upside down kingdom way of identity creation? And by the way, the only way you will live with some sense of sanity is to understand this. That Christianity is the only identity that is received and not achieved. Christianity is the only identity that is received and not achieved. There's no pressure. There's no pressure. You can get up and not worry about what, what, what people are thinking and all the different things that come at you as soon as you pop open your phone. You know why? Because you can rest in who you are in Christ. Because that identity has been given to you. You did not achieve it. You cannot continue it. He does it. He's holding us. He's doing all the work. Christianity is the only identity that is received, not achieved. This is not my idea. This comes from Tim Keller. You should know that I'm not this smart. Come on, guys. You are a child of God who has been forgiven and God loves you. That's your identity. And guess what? God will love you just as much today in all your mess as he will when one day you will be perfect and with him for all eternity. He loves you no different. He loves you no different. It's because of what Jesus has done. Your identity is received, not achieved. But the disciples did not know all that we know at the time of our passage today. The interesting thing is that we make the same mistakes about the upside down kingdom as they did, even though we know so much more. We will see three mistakes in our passage today. A lack of focus, a lack of humility, and a lack of wisdom. If you read with me in Luke 9, 43 through 44, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Lack of focus. They took their eyes off the cross. After healing the boy possessed by demon Jesus, Jesus did not want his disciples to be caught up in marveling over his miracles that they missed the main point of his ministry. He reminded them yet again in a short period of time. No, it's about the cross. It's about what I'm going to go do for all of those that are mine, all those that the Father will give me. It had only been a week since he first told them that he would have to suffer many things and be killed before rising again. Now he wanted them to hear it again. The main message of the gospel is not that Jesus can perform exorcisms and work other wonders such as healings and different things like that. Although, of course, he can, but that he came to suffer and die for our sins. That's the main point of it all. And the disciples just did not understand this. And maybe even some think, as, as the wording goes, that maybe God prevented them from understanding at this point in time. 
But this is now the second time that Jesus had predicted his death. But it did not make any more sense to them this time than it did the first time. What do you mean? You're the Messiah. You're going to go in there and kick the Romans out and take over. You're going to do the kind of Babel thing, the kingdom that we are familiar with. You're going to run in with power. There's no way you're going to be able to inaugurate your kingdom by dying. That makes no sense. But that's the truth of the gospel. See, they knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but they did not understand that he had to come to suffer for sinners. The idea that someone as powerful as Jesus would die in weakness was unthinkable. Luke tells us in 945, but they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. This is a like quadruple, four times he gives the neg negative here. The disciples had turned their eyes completely away from the cross, not seeing that Jesus was showing them about his sacrifice and not willing to ask the questions that would lead them into a sure and certain knowledge of salvation. We should know better. We, we know how the story goes unlike the disciples at this point in history. We know more. We have the whole story before us. Yet we still make the same mistake sometimes. We get our eyes off of the cross. We get our eyes off of Christ. Sometimes we do it different ways. We keep the cross near to the center of a Sunday morning worship, but we do not always keep it at the center of our daily discipleship or our daily interactions with those around us. Jesus has called us to follow him all the way to the crucifixion. He has called us to deny ourselves, take up the cross daily, and follow him, which we're going to look at again next week. So are, are we giving the people around us kind, sacrificial love that shows that we serve a crucified Savior? Are we doing that on a daily basis? Too often we take our eyes off the cross. We, we are not satisfied with Jesus. Instead, we want all of the other things that life has to offer. Jesus calls us to keep the cross at the center. Think of the Apostle Paul. He said, I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Or when he refused to boast about anything except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The cross must remain at the center of our personal evangelism, of what we tell people about the Christian faith. Like we, we can know, and it's good to sometimes argue, or not argue, but just to interact with some different loftier ideas. But if you have someone before you get to Jesus, make sure you ask him, what are you going to do with Jesus? You must remain at the center of our stewardship, of the costly decisions we make, about investing our time and our money in the building of his kingdom. It must remain in the center of our families, in the life of our faith family, as we serve one another in love. If we take our eyes off the cross, the constant reminder of all that we have been forgiven, of then we have little hope of forgiving others, of sacrificially serving others, as Christ called us to do. This is the first mistake. They take their eyes off of the cross. And it's closely related to the second mistake that they make, 
which is to seek greatness for ourselves rather than God. This brings us to what may be the most pointless debate in the history of human argumentation, and that's simply verses 9:46. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest among the disciples. And just a side note really quick, simply put, you think if you're making a fable, or if you're doing a, a fairy tale, if you're just writing a, a good legendary story, why would you put all these messed up people in it? <laughs> like, they, they did some interesting things that were like, I wouldn't have put that in my story. But it really helps us, shows us that the Bible is true. It's real. It's what happened. Again, this is a foolish debate because they were trying to get to the wrong end of the scale. Jesus had been telling them to deny themselves, but rather in carrying their crosses, they were still trying to climb to the top of the mountain. The upside down kingdom on display. How did Jesus respond to this argument? But Jesus, knowing the reasons, verse 47 of their hearts, took a child and put him by the side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. If you are in Christ, you are a child of God, and this is the relationship that God is looking to have with you, one of a child, one of dependence. There's no better place for any child to be than close beside the Savior. When you think of a child, like I use this illustration all the time, it is, is whenever the children come out and the parents are down there and they just fly off of the stage knowing mom and dad's going to catch me. That's the relationship that Jesus is looking from us. This, this idea of a child who is very dependent on everybody else. And that is what he's saying here. It's, it's not about being great that you can do it all on your own. It's about being dependent on him. This is one of the upside values of the kingdom of God. In which is to simply say, the least are the greatest. The least are the greatest. And what we're learning is true greatness in the eyes of God comes when we take the lowest place, seeking no recognition for ourselves, but showing concern for the weak and the helpless. And this is, again, what Philippians 2 was all about. So when we see the disciples' mistake of taking their eyes off the cross, of a lack of focus, asking who is the greatest, which is a lack of humility, and finally, a lack of wisdom, which comes in the form of John telling Jesus of an encounter they had with someone else in ministry. This is verses 49 through 50. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and tried to stop him but because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, it's not entirely clear why John said this. Possibly he was confessing his sins, <laughs> acknowledging that he had failed to treat someone else's ministry with proper humility. Maybe he was simply looking for clarification. Did I do something right or did I do something wrong? But it seems more likely that John was raising an objection. It was, it was all very well for Jesus to talk about being last, least in the kingdom of God, but surely some distinction still had to be made. Were not the disciples at least better than people who went around doing things in Jesus' name? We're not even part of the fellowship. See the distinction he's making? Like, he's not one of us, but he's out there casting demons out in Jesus' name. 
Can we not see that the previous mistake led to this mistake? Did they have the power because they belonged to the right church or because they were so awesome? Or did they have the power because God gave it to them? It's because God gave it to them. And God uses his power and chooses who does that as he desires and for his purposes. This is, takes great wisdom because there is a clear call to correct those who are doctrinal error. In fact, many of the, the letters we get in, in our Bible is Paul writing to churches that have doctrinal error. But what is our hearts in the idea that maybe because someone's not doing things quite the way we do them, that how somehow we gotta stop them? That like we gotta stop that from happening. Yes, correct doctrine, but are they for Jesus? Are they preaching the good news of what Christ has done? Well, it's gonna look different because God made us all different. He made us all different. So we should use great wisdom and maybe learn from others who have gone before us. J.C. Rowell writes, Christians in every period of church history have spent their lives in copying John's mistake. They have labored to stop every man who will not work for Christ in their way from working for Christ at all. They have imagined in their uh, petty self-conceit that no man can be a soldier of Christ unless he wears their uniform and fights in their regiment. We forget that no church on earth has an absolute monopoly of all wisdom and that people may be right in the main without agreeing with us. We must learn to be thankful if sin is opposed and the gospel preached and the devil's kingdom pulled down, though the work may not be done exactly in the way we like. Above all, we must praise God if souls are converted and Christ is magnified, no matter who the preacher may be and to what church he may belong. Make no mistake, other Christians are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. We should do everything we can do to encourage other Christians in their battle against him. We are all on the same team. When we take our eyes off the cross, we stop giving the sacrificial service that leads people to Christ. When we seek our own greatness, no one can see how great and how glorious God is. And we fight amongst ourselves, we drive people away from our fellowship rather than drawing them in. The first disciples made all these mistakes too, which might make us wonder whether Jesus made a mistake in choosing them. But here is a great comfort for all of us. Jesus has mercy and grace for people who make spiritual mistakes. The Gospel of Luke proves it. And I pray today you at least begin to see and maybe explore more of the upside down kingdom. We descend to greatness because greatness is found when we receive our identity in Christ and live out the upside down kingdom. My prayer is that you would leave here today with a heart focused on the cross, with a humble attitude as one who has been forgiven, with all the wisdom that the word and the spirit provide as we go and shine the light of Christ in a dark world. Will you pray with me? Father, again, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that we see mistakes being made so that we can not make those same mistakes, Lord. But Father, I pray that today that we 
we would step into this upside down kingdom and see how much joy and how much our lives would flourish if we lived by this. You have died to give it to us. What a wonderful gift you've given us. What wonderful joy there is if we live this out. And Father, I just pray today, if there's anyone here who does not know you, Lord, that either as we do communion, as we reiterate what Christ has done for us, if you would send your spirit and change their hearts so they may repent and turn from you and put their faith in you. And Lord, what a wonderful gift that we do not have to achieve who we are. You, you give that to us. We receive that from your word and from all that you've done for us. Thank you so much for that, Lord. Thank you. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.